Without uh, further ado, I'd like to introduce our speaker for tonight, Jack. I'm Jack, compulsive overeater. Speak into the mic. Uh, see, uh, I have uh, been a member of uh, Overeaters Anonymous since the 12th of February, 1971, and uh, which was uh, Lincoln's birthday, so I always... Uh, Thought of my day of emancipation. Um, now it could have been the uh, the fifth of February, 1971, because that uh, on that particular Friday morning I also went to the same uh, meeting location. It was a small church, but I decided I would never find the room, uh, so I turned around and went home. Uh, and I like to say that I. Uh, during that period of time, I turned my will and my life over to the care of my sister as I then understood her. Uh, and my, uh, my sister has always been skinny as a rail, and uh, I think she feels she's a compulsive overeater in ways or did at one time, but she attacked things like carrots and celery. Uh, and uh, so when she turned her back... Uh, because she had promised she would watch me, and when she turned her, her turned her back, and I started to eat, uh, and it wasn't my fault; it was her fault because she had uh, not fulfilled her obligation. And that's one of the things that uh, that I like to do is find somebody else to blame, almost anybody else other than me. Uh, and there's a, a tendency still in that, in there for me, in that. Uh, so. Uh, the I don't know. One of the first experiences I have, and uh, that comes to my mind, is uh, normally that my grandmother took me out when I was uh, was very young to a restaurant on my birthday, and she told me that I could eat anything that I wanted to, and so I ordered accordingly. Never give a compulsive overeater a free meal ticket, I guess. So, uh, and. Midway through the meal, I was uh, I was stuffed and feeling sick, uh, and I adjourned to the restroom, and I discovered a marvelous technique, uh, which I shall not elaborate on. And I came back out, and uh, and I continued eating. Uh, you know, I'm not the only one that has said this. Uh, I've heard it before from other people, but. Uh, and I think I first uh, first heard it from Bette Midler, uh, who probably is not a member of the fellowship. But I suffer from the disease of more. Uh, and there wasn't enough. Uh, Chuck C., who was a member of AA, many of you may not have heard of him. If you have, uh, it's, uh, it's a blessing. But uh, he's it's almost been 17 years since he passed away. But he used to say that if the entire ocean between his place in Laguna Beach and Catalina, uh, and he said you have to figure that that water is deep too. If that were filled with, uh, with alcohol, there wouldn't be enough there to satisfy his obsession to drink. And the same is true for me. Because you have to figure that sooner or later I'm going to run out of stock. There's not going to be any inventory left, and I'm going to get desperate. And I would probably get desperate while there were still, uh, you know, probably about the last 30 feet of water or whatever. I'd start thinking, you know, even if it would take me another week or two or a month or two, I'd be thinking in advance. Uh, so 
I suffer from, uh, from the disease of compulsive overeating, the disease of more, and in my case it manifested itself in, uh, in refined sugars and refined flours. When I came into, uh, <laughs> when I came into Overeaters uh, Anonymous, I was told about this thing about refined sugars and refined flours because I uh, started going to meetings in the Orange County area and the Lakewood area, which were uh, gray sheet meetings, and then in Los Angeles, they were uh, moderate mealers. Uh, I don't hear that term too much anymore. And also, when I came into the fellowship, you know, we often read the uh, the seven or eight tools. I think it's eight now. And when I came in, there were just three or four. And I've often said that OA is not going to be satisfied until we have 12 tools so that we can have 12 steps, 12 traditions, 12 concepts, 12 tools, and then start working on something else until it gets to 12. <laughs> and that's the way it is. Uh, lately, it's been, uh, been physical exercise is one of the tools, exercise. Uh, boy, and at that point, I may not be a member, uh, qualified as a member anymore. But... Uh, so, and the and uh, the first meeting that I went to, I got the uh, the lady uh, who I talked to on the phone as my uh, sponsor. And after I had uh, 21 days of, of abstinence, it was time to uh, be taken through the steps with someone. But she wasn't qualified because she hadn't done her inventory yet, and her. Her inventory was uh, still under the mattress in her bedroom where she'd been working on it for about three or four years. Uh, you know, I may say it in, in what may not seem like such a cool way or whatever. She was a really neat lady, and it takes whatever it takes uh, to get it done. So uh, I asked uh, uh, a man who became a very dear friend of mine and just passed away on the 21st of August uh, with almost 56 years of sobriety. I asked him if uh, if he would take me through the first three steps. Uh, he asked me whether or not I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. I explained to him that I had the big book of Overeaters Anonymous. Okay. Now, this is where he begins to get picky, you know, and he asked me if I had if I had read it. Uh, and I said no, but uh, I had taken a course in speed reading. So I told him I'd go home tonight and I'll read it and then we can get together this weekend because I had my 21 days and I wanted to get forward with this thing. Uh, and he said no, that was not acceptable to him. So being a person who is willing to you know, try to get along, uh, can't we all just get along, uh, I, I said, well, I can uh, slow down my reading pace and take the weekend he didn't like that either. He wanted me to take like two or three weeks to go through, uh, you know, what he considered the key portion of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, and so I knew immediately that he was not the one for me. Uh, so I found this wonderful lady named Jean. I was talking to somebody earlier about, uh, about toenails. It was Denise who gave me a ride here. It's really nice of her to help out. But, uh, Jean was such a, a really neat lady. She she combined spirituality and sexuality in one person, and it may not make sense, but she was just awesome. And she was uh, a little, uh, you know, she was short and uh, suffered from diabetes and had really difficult time losing her weight. And she was lucky if she lost even uh, you know a couple pounds in a year. Uh, and she was pretty adamant about following the food plan. 
and she loved Elvis Presley. You may know more about people, other people than you do about me by the time I'm done, because I, I, I'm kind of a history of OA in ways. Uh, and she had every, uh, every toenail and every finger, fingernail painted a different color. So it was coordinated, like each little finger was the same color going all the way through the thumbs and the same with the feet. It was very coordinated. And she would say, uh, my name's Jean, ain't I clean? Because people would respond, hi, Jean, so she'd go with the ain't I clean. Please, it was her line, not mine. And I didn't tell you this, but she's not with us anymore, so let us not make ill of the dead. They're ill enough already. Uh, so it was just, uh, she was a wonderful lady. We got together. She didn't have these ridiculous requirements. Uh, and so we went to uh, to her apartment, and uh, she went through a format which is very similar to what Howe uses today. It's almost the same thing, except they threw in some candles. Uh, and uh, I answered these questions, and then she read a, a thing to me about a butterfly, which probably many of you have, may have seen over the years. And she uh, she offered, uh, she suggested that I do the inventory, and offered to uh, to help me out in any way that she could. And it meant a lot to me uh, also when uh, there were, I think three of us or four of us in the in the car and when we got back to her house that night uh, I was having some troubles in the inventory and she uh, in the presence of the other ladies you know told them if I was having troubles at any time I could just call her and she said you don't even have to tell me what's bothering you all you have to do is just tell me you're having troubles with this thing and talk about anything you want to and I'll listen to you you know and it's people like that with that measure of caring that uh, helped. Uh, there was a, a guy one time who was a very interesting character anyhow, but uh, I was uh, having some problems because somebody had, had violated my anonymity, and uh, people in OA tend to have a more strict definition of anonymity than they do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Because uh, uh, the AA meetings I've been to, they're fairly free and liberal about who they talk about and what they talk about. Uh, but here, if you mention that you've even, you know, I got somebody got upset with me one time because I, I mentioned uh, that I heard that they had gone to lunch with somebody. Now, what's the big deal about going to lunch or dinner with somebody? You know? But it was a big deal to her. So, uh, so I I called him, and it turned out that he had a hot date going on that night. But he put aside his hot date so that I could come over and talk to him about what was bothering me. And it's people like that that are willing to set aside their personal lives and their personal situations that have really often helped me. And Jean that I mentioned to you earlier, uh, you know, I was not at the meeting, which was the last one she held at her home before she passed away. But uh, the people who were there said that she, it's almost like she knew, in a sense, what was going to happen. Because they said that she went around the room to each of the people there and told them uh, what a gift and what a blessing they were and what she saw as their gifts and their blessings. Yeah. And uh, I guess they remembered it uh, because of that, because it immediately preceded her, her death. Um, 
at, at least she died abstinent because I've known so many people in this fellowship who, uh, who passed away from the disease of compulsive overeating. And the one that I most often talk about uh, is a man named Ron Padoni. Uh, Ron Padoni had come into Overeaters Anonymous in the San Francisco area, weighing 550 pounds, and he moved down to the L.A. area. And when I was working on a history many years ago of uh, interviewing people for History of Overeaters Anonymous, and I was talking to Roseanne, she showed me a picture of Ron uh, when Ron weighed about 220 pounds. So he went from about 550 pounds down to about 220 pounds. That's 330-pound weight loss. But when I knew Ron, he was on his way back up, and he was more like about 350 to 400 pounds. And when Ron passed away, um, he weighed 650 pounds. And, uh, of course, special arrangements had to be made for the burial. And Ron was such a beautiful person. And that's the thing about this disease is it's no respecter of persons. And you can be one of the nicest people in the world or one of the most terrible persons in the world and get or not get it. You know, that's just all there is. But it seems like um, in these fellowships, I think you'll meet some of the nicest people. Uh, you may not necessarily think that they are at times, but if you really get to know them, I think often you'll find out that there's some real value. Uh, so then it was a matter of doing the inventory, yeah, which was part of the reason I'd come into this thing, because I, I knew about, uh, I'd watched the TV program, and they had talked about the 12 steps, and I just figured I'd get in there, get this abstinence, get the inventory, and move on. It's kind of like I do in a store. You know, I just know where I want to go. I get it, pay for it, and get out. Uh, however, when it came to the inventory, I found out that uh, in the face of doing it, my enthusiasm dwindled. Uh, so it took a while, and... Uh, Jean was really nice, that, that same lady, in allowing me to use her place to, to finish uh, my inventory, which I finally got around to doing. Now, I, I told you that I had the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, meaning that I had not read the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, because I have a thing about books. So when I first came into uh, to OA, I got the book Alcoholics Anonymous, I got the book The Twelve Steps and Twelve Traditions, I, got, I didn't bring it with me, but I got the book Alcoholics Anonymous Comes of Age. Uh, and I got the few pamphlets that OA had at that time. OA had no books then, uh, believe it or not. It's almost like before the computer. Uh, like, what did they do? So I had all these things, and I skimmed them, and I read the first page in uh, the book Alcoholics Anonymous, and it, when it came to talking about a doggerel on a tombstone, I didn't know what a doggerel was. I didn't care to know what a doggerel was. I didn't see what a doggerel had to do with alcoholism or compulsive overeating or any other ism or ing. Now, what I figured was that you guys uh, knew more than I did, which is a measure of humility in and of itself uh, or a good excuse for not reading. So I, uh, I decided that what I would do is when somebody said, you know, like a Freud, stood up and said, this is in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have perked up and I would have memorized his words, if there weren't too many of them, and I would have spoken them back. 
Uh, and that's that's what I did. You know, there uh, there was a guy many many years ago in OA named Don R. Uh, I don't know if anybody remembers him or not. But he would talk about, in the case of his family, he would talk about the sins of one generation going on to the next. And it reminded me of that. And lately what has been going on in my, uh, in my life lately is I've been reflecting. That, you ever heard a word called control? Yeah. And uh, what, what amazes me, I may get back to my story, but I'm diverting for the moment. Because... Um, it always gets me because the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous on page uh, 24, the italicized paragraph, says that we have lost the power of choice in drinking, or in my case, in compulsive overeating. And it always amazes me that, and, and not really, but that people talk about choosing to eat this or to not eat that. You know, it's such a big deal with them. You know. And um, I don't know about anybody else, but food did me and it killed me. And so I have no choice but to abstain. Now, if you consider there's a choice, you've got two choices, okay? Abstain and live or eat and die. Not much of an option to me. But I've always said, and I believe it's true, that if a person believes that they have a choice, sooner or later they will opt for whatever the other choice is. And so, so long as you believe that you are choosing not to eat whatever the foods are, sooner or later, more than likely, you will have them. But if you believe as I that your rights to those foods are gone and that by yourself you can't do this thing, but that with the help of a higher power, a God that there is no way to understand, you can make it, then you have a good chance, so long as you remember that. And when I first came in, it was under my terms. And I abstained because I wanted to abstain, because I chose to abstain. And I also decided that uh, I was asked about, oh, you have a mashed potato and vodka story, isn't that right? Yeah. Uh, those listening in. Uh, but... Uh, during that period of abstinence, people told me about this, and I was abstaining from refined sugars and refined flours, but I didn't fully buy into it. And what I was looking for was a carbohydrate sponsor, somebody to, to sponsor me back on to these foods. <laughs> I just looked in the mirror. I found the perfect sponsor. <laughs> but that's what I was looking for. Now, if I could just gradually bring them back in, uh, it would work out. So there were a couple of occasions uh, that I had different things, and uh, one of them I, you know, one of them was uh, I, I would get a fruit with each meal, and I was out with my sister, the one uh, who had turned my will in my life over the care of, and her boyfriend, uh, and his and his group, his rock group, and we were at a restaurant before a performance, and I had the whole meal, except I hadn't had my fruit. And I'm looking up and down this menu for fruit, and I just can't find it. And all of a sudden, my eyes found the word strawberry. This is cool. Strawberry is a fruit. Attached to the word strawberry was the word Sunday. There are some things you just have to work out in your mind. So I said to myself, what is in a strawberry Sunday? 
strawberries and milk. Right? Everybody knows that. So, you know, I had the strawberries Sunday, and they were in a hurry to leave, and I was in a hurry to finish my strawberry Sunday, and I'd meet them later. Uh, and that was not, to me, a break in my abstinence because I had made a willful, knowledgeable choice, you know, because I'm a chooser. So uh, it was a little later that I tried another experiment, and a little after that that I did what, for me, broke my abstinence, which was to eat between meals and not only to do that, but to eat without knowing I was eating. Such is the power of this disease. And had I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, I would have come across resentment is the number one offender because that's why I ate. You know, somebody knew something about something that I didn't know quite as much and it irked me and all the way home. Have you ever done this? You know, you had an argument with somebody, discussion. And you leave and it's not over because in your mind it's going on. Well, in my mind, it was going on, and even worse, I was still losing. <laughs> you think without the person there, I might have a chance, but not me. And so I, I went home, I, um, and the next thing that I remember is that I was sitting in a chair, and it was after a meeting and after coffee, which was a thing that we did all the time that's rarely done anymore. Uh, it was a very valuable experience, but it was after coffee, and I went home, and I found myself sitting in a chair, and I felt hungry, and I thought to myself uh, about having dinner, and then I reminded myself I had already had dinner before I went to the meeting, and then I felt the taste of food in my mouth, and I realized that what I had done was I had come home, I had automatically hit the kitchen, hit the refrigerator, and then just sat down. I had taken care of the resentment. I had numbed out. And when I came to the consciousness of what I had done, it scared me because I had seen other people and what had happened. So I called the woman who had become my uh, my maintenance uh, sponsor. And there's a, a third lady named Aline who is still with us today. It's still a wonderful lady. And she had been my maintenance sponsor. And one of the problems that she had had with me uh, was that I lose weight very quickly. Uh, less so now, but many years ago, very quickly, and I don't exercise. So imagine what a devastation I'd be if I exercised. I'd be worn out, exhausted, and dead. Uh, so uh, she kept adding foods, and she talked about this problem baby that she had because we were referred to as babies back there, and she kept adding food, and he kept losing weight. And I was honored to hold that title. Uh, and I, I, I called her that night and I told her what I had done. And at that moment, it was no longer a suggested program of recovery. Because when I told her what I had done, she told me what I was going to do. Now, my normal thing would be if you told me what I was going to do and I didn't discuss it with you. Uh, you would just, I might agree to it, but you would never hear from me or see me again. And if we did, it would be minimal eye contact, and I would avoid you like the plague. Okay? The other thing that I would do is let's be rational about this. Let's discuss the stuff that you want me to do. Uh, I did none of that. 
she told me exactly what I was going to do, and I did everything that she told me to do. And I tell people it's not as important what she told me to do as it is that I did what she told me to do. But I share what she told me to do, because uh, she told me she wanted me to go back on losing abstinence. She told me she wanted me writing down and calling in my food. Uh, the writing down part I objected to because I can memorize and I can tell you what I'm going to have and I can stick to what I'm going to have. Uh, she wanted me to read five pages a day out of the book Alcoholics Anonymous. I had to first find the book Alcoholics Anonymous. As I told you, when I had thought of that gem of a book, she wanted me to uh, underline. Underlining to me is a sacrilege. I probably got it from school librarians who were always telling you not to mark in books, and it almost became like the voice of God, but it's there. And I had two doctors for a lot of years, and both of them went through medical school and never underlined or marked in a book. And uh, she wanted me to write a one-page summary on the five pages that I read. She wanted me to get up at the next, next meeting that I went to and tell them what I had done and then sit down, shut up, and listen because I had nothing to share. And I tell you, just about everything she wanted me to do, I didn't want to do, and I objected to on one basis or another, including God as my basis. But I did everything she told me to do, and I think that's why I'm still here today and still abstinent. And I think it's also why this abstinence, which I do not declare as my own, the first one was mine. I did a heck of a job, too. Uh, just like I did on any diet. I've often said that a compulsive overeater has never met a diet that they couldn't fix. Uh, and we end up fixing it until we're a victim of it. Until you wouldn't recognize that diet from our previous eating pattern. <laughs> they look so similar. Uh, so I did that. And I, I later discovered that other people she sponsored, when she had them read the book, she only had them do three pages a day. Now, this is enough to go to the U.S. Supreme Court on, you know. But, uh, and we're the types to do it, so. But uh, I didn't even object then because five pages a day was what was revealed to her for me. Yeah, that was it. And so I did everything she told me to do. Uh, after a week, she released me from losing abstinence, and I was back on maintenance. I had not become a skeleton. Um, and I was about two-thirds or three-quarters of the way through the, through the book, and I asked her what she wanted me to do with all this writing. We should get together and share it or something. And she told me the writing was for my benefit, not for her benefit. But it's amazing because uh, I have a fair memory today still for the big book based on just that one reading alone. Not that I don't continue to read it. I don't want to give you that impression. But I can, I can often tell you what page or which side of a page it's on and often what part of that page it's on in the big book. And she didn't, <laughs> I didn't even, I didn't like discussing with things with her because I would, I would lose invariably. Uh, which meant that I came out a winner. But, uh, when I when I read the five pages, I figured that if she wanted me to write the five uh, the one page on the five, that I should do so with closed book. 
And if I had asked her, she probably would have told me that anyhow. So I discovered that you can read five pages, you shut the book, I'd go to write down the one page, and I wouldn't be able to remember what I had just read. And I swear to you, I would have read it. But it just hadn't sunk in. And so I would read the same five pages about three or four times. This is the equivalent of reading 20 pages, only you're not getting 20 pages out of it. So something happened, and I guess inside a bell rung, and it said, pay real attention to what you're reading. And so I would. So it got to the point where I could often read the five pages, do the underlining, uh, shut the book, and write the one-page summary. Uh, and as a result, as I, after a while, uh, people began to refer to me as Mr. Big Book. This is an incredible transformation. And I also discovered that the things that people often said were in the big book were not in the big book. You know, like one of the most common that used to be said, I haven't heard it in a long time, maybe some of you have or haven't, but that there are no musts. You know, ever heard that? There are no musts. Well, if you read through that, a very dear friend of mine named, uh, named Alta went through one time and wrote an article listing all the musts and must-nots in there. And they are there. But they are there once you've decided that this is what you're going to do. And if you're like me and suffer from the disease of compulsive overeating, you don't have much of an option. Because it's right back to live or die. Now, control. I may be close. So. Uh, on page 30 in the big book, or what I've come to see recently is really a metaphor of life. It says, the idea that somehow, someday, he will control and enjoy his drinking is the great obsession of every abnormal drinker or compulsive overeater. The persistence of this illusion is astonishing. Many pursue it into the gates of insanity or death. And I say that it's a metaphor for life because I didn't want to just control my food. I wanted to control every aspect of my life because it was uncomfortable for me. I felt uncomfortable about, around people and around new situations and everything. And I, and I often still do. And I was sharing the other night that when it got to the point of dating, I so wanted to have a script. So that you know, I was a nervous wreck as it was, calling up a, a, a lady and asking her to go out with me. And you know, so I'd have this kind of thing laid out on what was going to be said, and she wouldn't follow the script, you know. <laughs> you know, uh, or when I go for a job interview, you know, oh please, dear Lord, don't let them ask that, you know, or whatever, or please, I hope they ask this question, you know, I might be ready for that. And then they wouldn't have the script. And, you know, it it seems that this thing about control is amazing because we still think we have it. We still think we do. You know, I think most of us have heard that we're as sick as our secrets. Okay. Well, think about this. If you can accept the concept of God and an all-powerful God, okay, then God can lay out a plan for our lives. He can tell us what that plan is, and he doesn't need to worry about our botching it up. Okay? But we lay out a plan. I lay out a plan. 
okay? And uh, I can't tell it to you because if I tell it to you, you might not like it. Yeah. So that's part of the reason for a lot of... Se- I'm not talking about a surprise party for somebody. I'm talking about uh, life situations where uh, we know that if we say something, somebody's going to put the jinx on this. And we want to be in control. And it's just, it's, it's a total illusion all the way. And then what it says a little further, and then I'll get back, is that... Uh, The delusion that we are like other people are presently maybe has to be smashed. Here we go. We, alcoholics, are men and women who have lost the ability to control our drinking. Also to control my life or anyone else's life. Uh, We know that no real alcoholic ever recovers control. And the truth is, in life, is learning to accept that I never had control in the first place that the whole thing is an illusion. And it doesn't mean that I don't have goals that I would like to achieve, but it means that I don't have to stake everything on that goal. Okay? It means that I can I can work towards it, and if it doesn't work out, I can accept that that just was not part of my destiny. And especially, you know, uh, on page 62 in this book, which I won't bother to read to you, is really the secret of what all the problems are in the world and what the solution to those are. And it has to do with how much God loves us. And there's a line on page 62 uh, that says, you know, or it will kill us, and then it says, God makes this possible. Because God loves me so much that he gives me total freedom, pretty much, to screw up my life and screw up your life. And that's the truth. And that's what I was doing, going through life, screwing up me and screwing up you. And I think that that's what most of us do in one fashion or another. And so the program of Overeaters Anonymous gives an opportunity to help to straighten that out, to straighten my head out so that I can understand that I'm not any more or less important than anyone else in this world. And that's that's a lot, and it's something to come to at different times. Uh, many years ago, I I went with uh, with a, a later a lady, and uh, we just had such uh, an incredible attraction for each other. It was wonderful, um, and we broke up, uh, and it was a very painful breakup for me. And I called the the man who was my sponsor at that time. He was living in San Francisco, and I called him and I told him uh, what had happened. And he he said some really uh, wonderful things to me, including that it seems that some people come into these fellowships and within, you know, they become 30 or 60 or 90 day wonders. It's like they go through it, and it's all of a sudden there are no problems anymore. Yeah, it's just wonderful. Not only are there no problems, but they have solutions. Uh, and then he told me, he said, but for the rest of us, you know, it's uh, trudging and it's going from one level of surrender to the next. 
And what I discovered uh, nine years after um, I called my sponsor was that what had happened to me for the first time in my life was that I had been surrendered. And I think it is... Chuck C. used to say, and I, I believe what he said there, that it was divinely impossible for a human being to surrender themselves. In other words, I can only put myself in a state of willingness to be surrendered. And if you look far enough, steps six and seven say that very same thing. Because yeah. we ask God to remove our defects of character. It doesn't say anything else about us being able to remove our defects of character. It says we ask God to do this. Amazing. Yeah, and same thing with any obsession. And so it became very clear to me that God had done for me what I could never have done for myself, even today. And if I ever begin to think that I could, I'm in trouble. And that's why I say that this abstinence is not mine, but it's, it's God's abstinence. Thank you. And I cherish the gift. A lady named Dottie Shore used to refer to... Uh, to sobriety and abstinence as the pearl of precious price. Isn't that wonderful? And a pearl of precious price that you don't hide, but that you are very grateful for, and that everywhere you go, you're willing to share that gift. There's a, there's a man named uh, Fred down in our area, and I, I don't... I, told him the line last night, and I don't think he remembers even saying it, although he remembered the, the follow-up circumstances. But he once said that my disease is stronger than my ability to protect my anonymity. And he was talking about in a work situation. You know, like he, when he was at work, needed to be open about what he belonged to and who he was. And I have been the same way you know when I when I worked for wherever it was that I worked and whoever it was I worked for I didn't go out of my way to tell them what I was in but I didn't hide from it either and if it came up I was more than willing to share it and that's very important because if we hide from our disease we hide from our recovery that's very very true and to the extent that we're willing to let go that's the extent that we eliminate the suffering in our lives. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to have any problems anymore. I've got problems I could probably fill a basket with. But I have the ability to deal with them, and especially as I'm willing to let go and be open to other solutions. Because I, I said that I not only have an automatic response to try to push off responsibility for something on some unless it was something good of course that I'm willing to step forward to the plate you know, it was me <laughs> but if it's something that I did wrong I want to hide under the carpet or find a fall person you know, so I, I need to a, achieve a, a balance in my life and uh, this this is such such a, a precious gift and what what happened uh, with that lady that I called my sponsor over was that nine years later she called me on the phone and we wound up getting married. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an automatic thing like that fast. You know. but, Hi, Jack. Want to get married? No, it wasn't anything like that. You know, in fact, she wouldn't even tell me who she was at first. I recognized the voice, but I couldn't place a name to it or a body. So uh, we wound up getting married and then uh, we wound up 
uh, I got an annulment so I can say that I've been married or I can say I've never been married. And both statements are true. Uh, I love life. Uh, And, uh, you know, that period of time was, uh, was one of the most painful periods of time I've ever been through in my entire life. I mean, I would go to work and my my gut was just knots on top of knots on top of knots with a rock pile in it. And this was day after day after day. But I have not one regret over that entire period of time. Not one regret. You know. And uh, And I love her dearly for all that she is and all that she probably uh, you know, is today, all that she was and is, and for the great gift that we were willing to give one another because we allowed each other. It was like when it came time, she was sure it wouldn't work, and I was hoping it would, so she gave me a chance to see if it would work. And then when I got to the point where I was sure it wouldn't work, she became thinking that it might work. And so we went back and forth for three years on this until we both came to the same conclusion. I think that's a wonderful gift for two human beings to give one another because each of us at those times were sacrificing of ourselves. And the big book talks about when all else fails to get out of ourselves. And that's the whole purpose. Chuck C. used to say that people like to talk about this being a selfish program, and I have never bought that. And I heard him say on tape that this is not a selfish program. This is a get-rid-of-self program. And it's it's not all about me. That's the point. How easy it is for us to say it's all about me or, you know, it gets down to it's all about me. The truth is it's not all about me. It's all about us. Thank you.